I'll actually have you turn to the letter to the Colossians. I called an audible last minute, um, and so we'll be in Colossians. Or as Peyton Manning might say, Omaha, Omaha. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Colossians is where we will focus on this morning. Amen. Let's pause and pray. Father, thanks and praise be to you that your word is before us, but our flesh is also before us. So unless you intervene and cause us by your spirit to receive this word, we will will live this hour in vain. So we ask that you would visit us and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we are looking forward to encountering in Matthew 7, at this point in our journey through Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, is false prophets. Before we encounter and warn each other of false prophets and define what that is and what that looks like, we need to be fortified against false teachers and their teaching, which means we need to be fortified in the gospel. And so I called this audible because I was reminded by a friend this week about um, Colossians 1. And we need to investigate again, uh, hopefully slowly, but not too slow, um, the things of the gospel. So that when counterfeits present themselves, we can easily snip those things out. And actually, in his letter to the Colossians, that's really what Paul's doing. He is fortifying them against false teachers. He is overjoyed and overwhelmed with their faith um, in the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, which has come through a, a church planting effort by his brother Epaphras or Epaphroditus. And so Paul has heard of this, and Paul is praying for them, and Paul is going to help them to, again, meditate and hold to uh, the strict things in this gospel. One thing he's going to do is show a superiority over human philosophies and traditions. He's going to talk about walking Um, in a manner worthy, which the Jews uh, used to speak about their oral traditions and how to guide and direct their behavior. It was termed walking, walking according to the law. So Paul is going to use that phrase, but he's going to use it in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus Christ. And so he's going to not only help the Colossians meditate on the gospel, he's going to teach them how to walk in it. And so that when false teachers arise, which they surely had at Colossae and would continue to confront the church even into our day, they are going to be able to know and spot these people. And I, and I also want to take some more time before we get into Matthew 7 because it is one of the most crucial issues facing the church in America at this point in time, the subtlety of false prophets and teachers The wolves that uh, seek to come in in sheep's clothing, Jesus is going to describe them as, it's one of the biggest threats to us now. It's something that I really didn't, I really saw kind of going away through the whole uh, COVID mess. I I thought after that there would be a a really bold dividing line between those who were uh, giving and living their lives in the gospel and those who were against it, but But the opposite has taken place. There has been a a flood of false teachers and prophets that that are not denying, so to speak, the gospel as you and I would know it. But through their teachings and through their subtleties, um, they are uh, discounting 
and perverting the gospel so that eventually they can deceive and they can tear apart the wolves. It's, and, and we're told throughout the scriptures that, that this is what Satan does, is that he likes to disguise himself as an angel of light. He likes to make people think that they are walking according to the way or that they believe according to the way or that they are those who have been invited into the way when exactly they are not. That's why when you get towards the end of Matthew 7, you see that there's going to be people that have been led astray by false prophets and are not uh, those who belong to Jesus. And Jesus will say, I, I understand uh, that you've been in the church and you've done these things, but I don't know you. And so we have to be really clear, first of all, what it means to know him and what the gospel is. If we're not clear on our uh, vision of Jesus in the scriptures, then we will be those who are easily picked off by those ravenous wolves who come in looking for us. That's also why I am uh, very concerned <coughs> and very interested in the teachers that you listen to and the Bible studies that you do. Part of my job as a shepherd is to keep away the wolves. And so I am extremely interested in how you are being fed and how you are being led, not only on Sunday morning, but throughout your week, throughout your days. And, and the Lord has tuned my ear to that through the sufficiency of the scriptures ever since I am a baby in Christ some 13 years ago. And so I take this very, very serious because it's, it's easy, so to speak, to, to understand what heresy is in a way. If people just blatantly say that, you know, Jesus is not the only way, that's heresy. If people say that Jesus is not the Son of God, that's heresy. If, Je if people say that Jesus is a created uh, being under the Father, that's heresy. But what is more destructive to the church and to the lives of Christian people is the subtlety of error from those who would even confirm most of the tenets of the gospel. It's in what they don't say that makes them so destructive. It's what they gloss over or pass over or don't cover or don't bring out about the gospel that is harmful. So I'm very concerned because we can easily be led astray by subtleties. And so I want to look at most of chapter 1 today, namely verses 3 through 23, and once again discover and uncover what the gospel is, what it looks like, what it produces. And namely, I like to say it this way, who the gospel is. Who, who the good news is. One of the best books that I have in my library is by John Piper, and it's called God is the Gospel. If you understand that the good news which is the gospel, is that you get relationship with God when you don't deserve it, then you have your prize. He is it. Now, you also comes along with that, you know, you're going to dwell where he dwells. You're going to live where he lives. And so we have a picture painted in Revelation, right, of, of what that's like the streets of gold and that sea of glass and the extreme majesty of his throne and the praise and worship that occurs and the magnificent beast that we see flying around and the angels. You have all that because that is the glory of God that will radiate from wherever he is. But he is the gospel. Getting him, getting relationship with him, dwelling with him, the intimacy with him is the good news. So, Paul.
Paul says in verse 3 of Colossians 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Notice, first of all, that Paul is essentially communicating that the Colossians have expressed and exemplified a fulfillment of what Jesus says are the two great commandments. They love God, or they believe Him, would be another way of saying that. In essence, they have what faith in Christ Jesus. They trust Him. They trust that in Him there is relationship with the Father. So that's the first great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So then what do they do? He's also heard that they have uh, love for all the saints. So there it is. In essence, if you are reborn by the gospel, um, Jesus is imparting to you uh, the, the spirit of fulfilling the law. The two great commandments. That becomes part of you because of him in you. Because of his spirit and the new heart that he has given us. And then he does this, which Paul often does, and you can read this in 1 Corinthians 13, but he, he puts faith, hope, and love together, doesn't he? And so in verse 4 and 5, you have those three elements. Faith in Christ Jesus, love for the saints, um, because of the hope that they have laid up for them in heaven. So they understand there is an inheritance for them in the presence of God, which has been made possible by Jesus, whom they trust has made that possible. And it came to them, how? By the word of the truth. Look at the indefinite article there. The truth. The gospel is exclusive. There is a singular truth, right? Because not all supposed truth can be truth. If I say I have a watch on and Andy says I don't, those are two conflicting ideas, but there's a real reality that I have a watch on. So there is the truth of the watch being on my wrist. There is also the truth when it comes to the gospel. And, and I often communicate it this way. What, why is the gospel truth? I thought it's good news. Well, the gospel's truth because the good news starts with the reality of what we see in the garden, that you have a perfect, holy, righteous, sovereign, uncreated God who creates man, who disobeys that God, and is therefore uh, separated from relationship with that God. That is the truth of all human existence and reality. That is why you and I experience the world like we experience it. Death, pain, um, sin of all sorts. Why men become inventors of evil and, and create all sorts of chaos. That's the truth, right? And, and the good news about that is that God has done something to reconcile those, those filthy, awful people to himself once again to restore that relationship that was lost in the garden. That's the truth. And then it all starts from there, right? But he's rejoicing, he's thanking God. Okay, by the way, let's back up a little bit. Do you know where Paul is writing this letter from? Prison. And I'm always amazed... But I know that Paul has learned the secret to contentment. I'm always amazed that he can rejoice like he does while imprisoned, while beaten, while cursed, while shipwrecked, while snake bit, while all these different things on account of Christ. He can always rejoice so that he can, he can sit in this prison and give thanks to God and even not be internally focused, but outwardly focused 
giving thanks for God on behalf of the faith of other people that he's heard about. If you and I are, okay, I won't say you, but if I'm in prison, my natural um, state would be to just be broken and distraught and, and inwardly focused. Like, how could this happen to me? Why would this happen to me? I can't believe, you know, this is really bad. I hate this. But that's not Paul. He's taking the opportunity to write letters and say, I am thanking uh, God for your faith in Jesus, your love for the saints because of the hope you have laid up for you in heaven. You receive that because you received the truth, the gospel <clears throat> that came to you. Verse 6, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So they've received the same gospel that is causing fruit to be born in the world. It's increasing among them because they've heard it and understood the grace of God in that truth, that he has overcome the, the chasm that existed between him and us. And by bearing fruit, we'll understand that he means the world is now experiencing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control because the gospel has changed people. And those people are bringing to bear the kingdom of God in this world by the spirit of Jesus Christ. And so the world now has these things, which otherwise they wouldn't have or they wouldn't know because we all stand condemned under God. That's the truth. Because the gospel then comes from that truth. We have those uh those, those fruits that are spirit-born that are coming to bear on the world. And the Colossians are a part of that. And they're a part of that because Epaphras came to them as a faithful servant of Jesus and, and, and made the gospel known to them. And then he went to Paul and made known the Colossians' love for Paul according to the Spirit. Who's Epaphras? If you go to the end of this letter... Chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras is with Paul in prison. And in Colossians 4, 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling in prison? No. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Epaphras, Epaphroditus' concern in prison is, is the growth, the spiritual maturity of the Colossians through which the desire, he, he, he takes that desire and struggles in prayer on their behalf while he's in chains. That they may know the will of God, that they will, what Paul's getting ready to say, walk in a manner worthy, that they'd bear fruit. He's dependent on God to do a work in the lives of his people. It's not about him. It's not about Epaphras. He's not saying, hey, your, your beloved father in the faith is in chains. Pray for me. Help me. Think about me. He's concerned about them where he is. That to me is beautiful. That, to me, is the heart of a faithful servant who serves under Christ. So if, if we want to detect false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing, you've got to look for that heart. Is it about them, themselves, that shepherd, or is it about the sheep? And so, verse 9, from the day we heard, 
we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This, this, is, this is the desire. This is what we're looking for. This is why I love the letter to the Colossians, because this is what we're after. We want each other, or should want each other, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all circumstances, because not every single one of our circumstances is written about in Scripture. But Jesus is detailed in Scripture. The way that Jesus walked is detailed in Scripture. The fruits of the Spirit are detailed in Scripture. And we need the knowledge of how to walk in each of these circumstances, which would be His will. How do we follow you in this circumstance, Lord? Or when this happens, what's it look like to follow you? So he's, he wants this for them, this spiritual wisdom and understanding that God gives us in all these unique circumstances that we find ourselves in. So that we are able to follow him through them. Or as he says in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we know from 2 Thessalonians that he causes us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So we must implore him to do that in us. We must ask him to cause us to walk in that manner worthy. And that's essentially what Paul's doing in verse 9. Is asking that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they know how to do that. And that is God giving that to them so that they do walk in a manner worthy of him. Fully pleasing to him in every situation. Bearing that fruit that we talked about earlier. And notice this, increasing in the knowledge of God, like becoming Bible nerds, no. But increasing in the intimate knowledge of who God is. And the more they know God, the, the, the easier, the, the closer they will be able to follow him through all of those situations and circumstances in life. Understanding who he is and what's he about and what he does and what he said and what he's promised. All this, all understanding God allows us to... Um, imitate him or follow him allows us to do what we know he would have us do according to his character and according to his will. So we need to be about further knowing him. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You know, Paul also tells us later that we are those who are characterized as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That we endure, that we wait on the Lord, and that in the meantime, through everything, that we can have joy. And that goes back up to verse 5 about the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven. Joy in the Christian life cannot be extinguished. It can be maybe covered up or marred for a moment in time in your spirit or in your heart, but it cannot be taken away because it's in heaven. It can't be removed out of the hand of God, out of the promise of God. It's yours at all times. How, how, do, you, how do you mourn as a Christian? You weep and you hurt but you have hope which gives you joy in the midst of that. How do you endure persecution as a Christian? You think of what is yet to come. You think of your reward in Christ. You think of, the, of how they treated him, and surely then they must treat his followers the same way or worse. And you know what's his inheritance. You know that he was resurrected. So if you're following in him much the same way, then... Those things are yours eternally, therefore you have joy. Joy is in Jesus and it cannot be taken from you. And notice how this works. 
Notice who works. God works all this. God is working all this. God is strengthening us with, with all power according to his glorious might. God has established our reason for joy. And through that joy, he allows us, enables us to endure with patience. And most manuscripts of the Bible that we have in our possessions don't put a comma after joy. It says, with joy giving thanks to the Father. So, we rejoice at all times in all things because of the hope that we have in heaven. And therefore, we have every opportunity to give, or every reason to give thanks. If there's a reason for joy for us, there's a reason to give thanks. That all earthly circumstances may be stacked against you, but if you are in Christ, if you have a hope laid up for you in heaven with him, then you can give thanks with joy at all times. That's not going away. That is yours. That is coming. Because look at this in verse 12. With joy giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. <laughs> so we're, we're going back to the beginnings of the gospel here. He, he made you able or worthy of inheriting what you're going to inherit in Jesus with the rest of the saints in light, which is to say glory. He gave that to you. He, he cleansed you by the blood of his son, taking away your sin and the penalties of your sin and placed in you and on you his righteousness, which makes you a son of his, which qualifies you for inheritance. He did that. He put it on you. So one way you need to watch out for false prophets is where they proclaim a works righteousness. We don't have that in the gospel. We have a God who qualified us or made us righteous in Christ or, or brought us from death to life. That's his work. Therefore, it's his glory. It's his praise to be had from that. It's not ours. He qualified us to share in this inheritance. So, again, do you have reason to give thanks? Yes. Because somebody did something for you. And when somebody does something for you, do you say thank you? I hope you do. Well, <laughs> how much more, to an infinite degree, do we give thanks to God who qualified us to share in such an inheritance? And if that's the case, then why would our joy ever end? It doesn't. It's always present, it's always there, because his kingdom is eternal. Let's, let's go even further, Paul says. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Like, just when it couldn't get any better thinking about an inheritance that is incomprehensible to imagine the, the vastness of it, the sum of it, the glory of it, the majesty of it, we're reminded that we lived, existed in this domain of darkness and he moved us, transferred us, took us from one place and put us in another. It's the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a kingdom that he gave Jesus. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's not a kingdom he gave us because we deserved it. It's a kingdom he gave Jesus because he deserved it. And Jesus brought with him captives that were held captive by sin and death so that we become uh, those who live in the victory that he won. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 4, we go to meet him in the air when he returns as he's coming in because that's a victory parade. So you're with him in the victory that he won. Because we were transferred into that kingdom. Because we were qualified to share in that inheritance. Because he redeemed us. He paid 
the price for our sins. Therefore, they are forgiven. They are cleared from us. They don't hold a weight or an authority over us any longer. We have the righteousness of His Son. Okay, let's talk about His Son. Verse 15, who is He? He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now, was Jesus born by God, or did he eternally exist? He eternally existed. We know that. John 1, right? But we're using this, or Paul's using this, to display to us how everything came about. And that he is the image by which we were created. He is the force by which we were created. He is the reason for all that is created. It was created through him and for him. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And you read in Genesis that they made man, and let us make man in our image. That's speaking to a plurality of an eternal uh, God that exists before all things, and over all things, and creates all things through himself. Which is what he says in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, this world and everything in it, that we read in verse 16, was created for him. And you're like, everything? Yeah, everything. Everything is going to give him glory. It doesn't have a choice. He did this and put this all into motion for his glory. And the Father is giving glory to the Son because the Son is giving glory to the Father by obeying his will even to the point of death. And so he's lifted up, right? We see him first on the cross, lifted up. And then you see after his resurrection, he is truly lifted up. And when you get to Revelation, he is the lamb who was slain, who is being praised day and night by all these living creatures and the elders. So, he is working, holding all things together in their proper place that he is determined by the counsel of his own will to bring him glory. If he weren't upholding the universe, then it would not exist. But in, in, a, in an intimate way that is unlike the rest of the world, unlike what he's doing in the rest of the world, he, he is intimately acquainted with his church, which is his body. There is no other institution or, or group of people or community that he has promised to build and never let be destroyed other than his church. We are it. We are the only thing that Jesus promised to build and never let crumble. Everything else will be destroyed. His church will not be destroyed. Why? Because his church is his body. And he's eternal God. You don't destroy him. Verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He inaugurated this thing. He created this thing. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, his resurrection is the reason why his people, his church, can expect a resurrection. He started that whole thing. And by the way, in case we're getting tripped up still with uh, this firstborn language, this is what God says of David in Psalm 89, 27. 
He talks about making David their firstborn in a certain context. David was already created. And he's going to make him the firstborn again of something else? So, now look at this. This is what causes Jews to this day trouble. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do you understand what that means? That is, that is blasphemy to the Jews. That's why when Jesus says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, that's why they want to kill him. Because they understand that Jesus makes himself equal with God. Right? One of the subtle ways that we really don't pick up on a lot, but is in a Jewish context really proclaims, or is Jesus proclaiming that he is God, he's the image of the invisible God, is that he accepts worship. When people bow before him, what's he do? He accepts it. He, he commends them for it. But what do the apostles do when that happens? Or what's the angel do even in Revelation when John tries to do that? Uh-uh, get up, get up, get up. I'm not him. But Jesus says, I am him. So worship of Jesus is right because all the fullness of God is there. In other words, you, you remember the scenes of the tabernacle from the Old Testament. And in the Holy of Holies is the presence of God, right? By which the high priest goes in once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people in the presence of God. And they tied a rope to him because even if he was unclean or if something was unclean, he would die in there in the presence of God, the holy presence of God, and they'd have to, find, have to have a way to get him out. But in Jesus... That's where the holiness of God is. In other words, as he lives and breathes and talks and walks and eats and sleeps, he is carrying with him the presence, the full presence of his holiness. He is the tabernacle. He is the meeting place with God. And through his flesh, through it being torn open, you have the the, the um, signal of that within the, uh, in the temple, when the, when the sheet is torn from top to bottom, he is opening up the reconciliation for us as his people to again meet with God in his holiness. He is God and man. He is the perfect one who has positioned himself as the instrument of reconciliation. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How do you make peace by the blood of a cross? He satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. And if there is no more wrath to be poured out for your sin, what's left? Peace. Not silence, not, not ignoring us, but removing the necessity of having to pour out on us wrath due our sins. That's satisfied. The payment's paid. And now, what's left? We can have peace. Because he is committed to righteousness. He's committed to holiness. It's not like he just was like, uh, we'll just forget about those sins. No, God is just. But Romans 3 tells us he's also the justifier. So I'm going to punish your sins, but it's going to be on Jesus. It's not going to be on you. And then I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you his justification through his righteousness. So, peace. God is love. God, in, God communicates love 
in himself before we're ever created. And so he loves Jesus. And as Jesus comes and lives as one of us, he loves him perfectly the whole time because Jesus loves God perfectly the whole time. They have never not perfectly loved each other. Never. And so, we get invited into that love by Jesus. By, through his flesh, through his body, reconciling us to God. And you read in John 17 what it's like for us now to be invited into the love that, that, that Jesus had with God before the foundation of the world. He's praying to the Father about bringing us into that. And it's glorious. So, by the blood of his cross, we're reconciled to God. Everything that was in the way has been moved out of the way. And there is peace with him. Peace. You know, I think all humankind is looking for peace. Some look through peace by destroying all opposition. Some look through peace by escaping to another reality or frame of mind through addiction or drugs or whatever the case may be, or even through a different fantasy world that they create. And I, and I think it's true to say, because of the fall in the garden, that all mankind is looking for peace. They understand in and of themselves that, and in this world that something is upset Something is not peaceful. Something has caused this great division and this great chaos. And, and we are longing, as Romans 8 says, for that to be restored. All creation is longing for the revealing of the glory of the sons of God because they dwell with God in peace. And we're longing for peace. And until you know what peace it is to be reconciled to God, to have a debt paid that could never be paid to have a, 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 a spiritual death and a sin overcome that you could never overcome, then you don't know peace. You, you, you try and get glimpses of it. You try and, and, and work for it through those things that I mentioned earlier, but you'll never have a constant unending peace that brings joy even in the midst of pain unless you know the peace of the bud of his cross. That's the only that, that is the peace that we're looking for as mankind. Because we also know from Romans 8 that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And those who live according to the flesh cannot please God. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, there is life and peace. Peace with God is the peace we're looking for. Because, verse 21, we are those who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And he took those people, verse 22, and has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, go back to verse 12, right? He is the one who has qualified us. And then Paul just explained how in verse 22. His body, God's body of flesh by his death did so in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He, he, he put himself in our place to make us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Our fighter verse, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you have received mercy. And the more that we remember that, meditate on that, the more reason and opportunity we have for giving thanks with all joy. 
There is nothing that brings more joy than that. Because there is nothing that brings more peace than that. Because there's nothing that brings more hope than that. Because there is no greater love than that. So he came in the flesh that has so uh, offended him. He came in that likeness, bore that flesh, took the punishment for that flesh, and gave us his spirit, gave us his life. Or as John 1 says, that light. And we're now called saints of light. But he reminds the Colossians in verse 23. This, this element. God qualifies us. God makes us. God transfers us into this kingdom. God does that. But it's not that you can ignore that you have now been called unto holiness. This should be the desire and the striving of your heart. Verse 23. If Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and in which I, Paul, became a minister. So if you hope in anything other than the gospel that you received the truth from that point in time that you became a Christian or that you at least believed it, if you don't hold to that as your only hope, then you will not receive the inheritance. This is, this is the parable of the soils, so to speak, right? All those soils, it seems, um, except for, the, except for the, the, the rocky one, it seems that they have received the gospel. But then issues or even hopes in other things come in and they choke that out and it, proves unfruitful, that it never took root. And so, one glorious way to be reminded that the Lord has transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son is that when, when you're asked or attempted to hope in something other than the gospel in your spirit, you can't. In your flesh, you may even want to. Because it may mean temporary relief. If you're in financial ruins, you may hope in the lottery. Because it'll surely get you out of that for a time. But if you are, have, if you have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, your, the spirit will say no, no. Hope in God alone. He has an inheritance that you can't count, that you can't number, that you receive in an eternal dwelling in his presence. These temporary sufferings are not worth comparing with that glory to be revealed, so don't hope in anything else. So we're, we're, we're called to remember the distinctives, the exclusivity and the glory and majesty of this gospel, the truth. So when counterfeits come, or when false prophets come, we cast them from our midst. But be careful. I'll give you the warning here before we close. The Ephesians were, were warned by Paul to hold to doctrine. That is, the truth of the gospel presented to them by Jesus, by his apostles, who directly received the message from him. Okay? Fast forward to the beginnings of the revelation and Jesus is writing letters to what I believe are probably the shepherds of those churches and he tells the Ephesians you got it you, you, you cannot bear with the false teaching and prophets you're holding fast to good doctrine but I have this against you and we're like what 
They've got doctrine. They, they know the truth. They're following the truth. What? He says, you forgot your first love. So it's one thing to hate false prophets and to hate false teaching, but it's, but it's another thing be, to hate that because you so love Jesus. You are always captivated by his gospel. You are always moved and motivated by the fact that in his flesh, by the blood of his cross, he made peace for you with God. And if you try and come in here and say something else, you are profaning the name of my beloved Savior. You are profaning his work on the cross. You are profaning his sacrifice, his complete obedience to the Father in heaven. You are profaning my hope in heaven, which he's promised to me. Get out. It has to come from that place, not because, oh, well, this says you're wrong. It does say you're wrong. But, but, but how intimately are you familiar with the one who is right or the truth? So be aware and be mindful of the gospel all your days. And we'll sort out false teachers. Pray to your Father in heaven, then we'll stand and sing together.